This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the old city of Jerusalem at Asia Torah overlooking the Temple Mount. If you're watching this, please share it out there and uh, welcome. Uh, this week what we're doing is we're talking about how to master free will. doesn't mean you're going to master free will, but at least you'll know how to. And because it's, it's the five steps in mastering free will. The first day we did constant, and that's that we're involved with uh, every day's uh, choices. We're making choices, you know, all the time. That was the first class. And then there's, um, and then the second class was reevaluation, because if you don't reevaluate your life, you know, you're hardly with free will. You're stuck in your old way of being, which is, you know, re- it's really important to reevaluate your life. And I actually did take a mikvah since that class. And, uh, I mean, I take a mikvah every day, but I did the, I'm a Gentile mikvah, where I went under, you know, and came up, okay, I'm Jewish, went under, like, I, I did the full conversion, because I want to reevaluate my, my life all the time. And I, I did a full reevaluation uh, last week of my marriage, uh, which has really had... Uh, amazing impact on my marriage. I mean, just, you know, I bumped it up big time just from a major reevaluation of it. And, um, make a bracha boch ata And, uh, so that's reevaluation. And then uh, we had two pitfalls with reevaluation. One is momentum, because we're stuck in old dictates. And, um, and then the other is looking good for other people is that we wind up not reevaluating because it's going to rock the boat of the people you love most or who love you most. And who wants to rock the boat of their innermost support system? So no one wants to rock that boat, so you wind up not reevaluating your life, which means the people who love you most are the ones who are making you feel the most dead. Because if you don't reevaluate your life, everything's going to die on you. All your even most inspiring decisions will die because it's hard to keep that flame alive unless you truly reevaluate with courage how you, you know, look at that. And the, uh, but the problem is you can't really reevaluate really because you're not willing to risk your support system because as we spoke about it, human beings are always in, like they're right on the edge of identity crisis at all times because 99 out of 100 human beings are living in what's called self-image. And self-image is the imaginary self. Image is short for self, for imagine. So everyone, 99% of people are living in self-image. So, so if you're living in self-image, that means you're living in an imaginary self. And that imaginary self, it doesn't take much, you know, to poke a hole in it. So, like, you know, stay away from cactus, you know, when you're hiking. Because who you think you are could disappear like that, you know. And that's why you tend towards people who think like you. You'll tend towards them. You might travel a little less because that's going to be putting you in question and stuff like that. Most people are living in this, you know, this deck of cards identity. That's did I say deck of cards? House of cards identity that can get blown over. Their 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 self their self image is a is a sandcastle waiting for a wave to come wash it away, and and that makes you extremely vulnerable and and. Um, and therefore, also not so friendly. <laughs> no offense. But you're not that friendly. 
And the reason you're not that friendly is because if you're that friendly, you're going to get a million different opinions and they're going to shape you in ways that are beyond your self-image. And that's, that's a, uh, that is uh, threatening. And so it's better not to be that friendly. I'm personally extremely friendly. <laughs> I'm like crazy friendly. You know, I, I'm just, you too, yeah. We're, what's her name? She's also really friendly, but, but I'm really friendly. And, uh, but it's great because I get to know all kinds of random people all the time because I'm just very friendly. And, but it's shaped me so much. And, and that shape, that shape seems to be something you guys like because you come to my class each day, many of you, and. So you, you must be interested in that kind of shape of someone shaped by the world and, and many different things. Now, um, we're on number three. And step three, so what were the first steps? Constant. Every second you can make a choice. Number two was reevaluation. Number three is the battleground. And what's the battleground? The battleground is between two voices that are in your head. Have you guys ever heard the voice in your head? We're going to take a moment of silence now in honor of... Just kidding. We're going to take a moment of silence and just listen only to the voice in our head. Voice in my head? What voice in my head? I don't hear a voice in my head. What's he talking about, a voice in my head? Well, that was the voice in your head. You missed it. Well, I don't get it. Don't worry about it. So, it's fine. How you doing? We've got a couple seats over here. Just come on down. Oh, is there a seat there? Or is, yeah, there's a seat right there also. Let's try it again. Everyone take a moment of silence, and this time... Be a little more cognizant that there was a voice in your head and listen to the voice in your head. I'm not teaching this class, you should know. The voice in your head is. I'm just sending things across the room that are patterns of vibrational frequencies. And, I mean, I am formulating words, apparently, and they're going into your brain, but everyone's voice in their head is going to hear what I'm saying differently. You know, there are things I could say throughout this class which would be totally upsetting to you and totally inspiring to you, <laughs> based on the voice in your head. And therefore, you know what, maybe grab this seat and we'll... Oh, you have a seat there? Oh, excellent. You're good. Which is pretty wild. Because you could all, you know, one stimulus, one stimulus, i.e. me sending vibrations out here called English, could have, I mean, there's probably like 40 of you sitting in here right now, could have 40 takes. Because the voice in your head is what's teaching. And you, and I'm going to ask you this question. and put a little Venn diagram here. got reality and then you've got interpretation. 
reality versus interpretation. <laughs> that didn't go so well. I gotta work on my art. Reality versus interpretation. Uh, where do you think you live? In reality or interpretation? Uh, yeah, you live. Both is very good. You've been listening to Rabbi Berger, I guess. But the. Um, <laughs> are you a Jew or a Gentile? Both. So, um, reality versus interpretation. So, so the. Um, so you live in interpretation. And. Hopefully, Alex, you live in a bit of reality, I hope, but you're really interpreting reality, and all of us have this little voice in our head that's interpreting everything. Well, it'd be pretty important to, it's pretty important, first of all, just to get that, that you have, you really have very little say about reality, very little say, because it's going to be interpreted by you, by that voice in your head. So, so that already has you loosen your grip a bit. Um, you get a little more humble because, you know, you start using words like "it occurs to me." Now, I know people who have mastered that those couple words. Whenever they make a statement coming from themselves, they'll say "it occurs to me," which is so accurate. It's such an accurate way of, of viewing things because it's only occurring to me. It's not. I don't know what's going on, but it occurs to me this way. And so it already uh, humbles you a bit. Um, but it's another thing, and it's a great leaping, a great, uh, what's, what are my words today? It's a great launching pad. <laughs> Springboard. <laughs> it's funny that they're all coming in the end, because some days they don't just come. Like if I'm having word trouble, it doesn't come. I have to rely on you. It's a great Springboard for really deep work. Why? Because think about it. If you really want to figure out why the voice in your head hears everything the way it does, well, you'd have to go down the rabbit hole of your life. And going down that rabbit hole of your life in a humble way is going to lead to a very different approach to, the, to life after you went down that rabbit hole. Because suddenly you start to see why you think the way you do and why you hear things the way you do, why the world occurs to you the way it does. And it's, it's, it, it gets kind of randomized. It becomes kind of like in a blender. If I use for an example, uh, what's your name? Bernard. What? Bernard. Bernard. Okay, where were you born, Bernard? States. The where, like what address? What address did you grow up in? What was the address? What address? 619 Water Street. Water Street? Woodard Street. Woodard Street. How do you spell that? W-O-O-D-A-R-D. Interesting, Woodard Street. So, what was it, 16? 619. 619 Woodard Street. So he grew up on 619 Woodard Street. What number kid were you? Uh, the only one. The only one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Now, imagine that that um, Bernard... Be- Bernard. Yeah, Bernard. Imagine that Bernard... <laughs> was born on 841 Woodard Street. This guy, to totally different parents. And he's kid three. He's got two older sisters and two younger sisters. And his father took off. So he's being raised by five women. (laughs) 
you realize you, but you would be com- totally hearing the world, seeing the world, experiencing life totally differently from just a couple, just from a few blocks over on the same street. But imagine like, instead of just being like a couple yards, like a couple hundred yards over, imagine being a hundred miles over. How about a thousand? How about 5,000 miles over? So you start to realize that the voice in your head, kind of once you go down that rabbit hole, all of the way, the way you look at the world basically goes through a blender. And once the way you look at the world goes through a blender, you get this whole new title. You know what the new title is? It's an amazing title. Always fun to be around. It's called, it's called Open. You get to be known as someone who's open. And Open's an amazing place to be when you're in God's world. Because he's also open. As we spoke about yesterday, he's open to all kinds of crazy stuff. Like even, even orchestrating your own dumb moves. You can't get, a, can't get a being more open than God. You know, because every stupid thing you've ever done, he totally orchestrated for you and helped you achieve it. You can check out yesterday's class on that, anyone watching this. So open's a good way to interface with God because God's also extremely open. Like way more open than any human being ever was. And as we spoke about yesterday... A little too open in our opinion, because we would not have been as open to Hitler's birth. But God was. So there's just stuff we'll never understand about how open God is to things. But you being open is probably an amazing, amazing way. (laughs) Some cute little blonde toddler just opened the door. He was coming in. His father's just chasing around. Next time you should let him come in. He belongs in here because he's open. He's just walking around opening doors and marching in. It's funny, yesterday a woman asked me if we have a stapler. And so I looked behind the desk over here for the stapler. And then I was like, no, there doesn't seem to be a stapler here. But but there are offices upstairs. You can just go knock and like, you know, ask for a stapler. She's like, no, no, I'll, no, no. I think, no, no, really go. And I was like, I, like, I stopped myself, but I was starting to convince her to go do this. Because I knew that if she went and did that, she'd meet somebody. And that would mean something somewhere and somehow. And, and like just asking for a stapler can transform your life. But she wasn't open to going upstairs and dealing with that kind of confrontation of, can I borrow a stapler? So it opens really, really an important attribute. And, and it's, um, and by the way, I know a lot of you are thinking, well, great, Rabbi Glazer says be open, you know. <laughs> I, I can't wait to read the obituary with my name on it in another, like, month. So. <laughs> it's really hard to read an obituary when you're the one in it. But the, um. When I say be open, I don't mean be brainless. I'm just saying be open. Just experience God's world. And, and the answer is yes, most of the time. But use your brain. You know, I, I certainly use mine, and I'm navigating wonderfully. Extremely open, but I know how to say no. Believe me, I know how to say no. <laughs> People are a little too strong with it sometimes. But, you know, I've got... 
<laughs> first of all, I've got a couple thousand laws of what not to do that I've committed myself to as a person of the ancestral heritage of, of Israel. So that's already th- like thousands of no's. Like, I've got lots of no's. And, uh, but it's not just that. I've got years of intuition. Years of intuition of, of being on the journey of open because you want to know something amazing. I'm going to go a little deep with you right now. Is that if you want to gather intuition on when it's no, well, you better be open. Because otherwise you're going to be saying no at the wrong times. Just out of pure fear. Just from fear you'll be saying no to things that were actually yeses that God put right in your face. But you said no because you're living your life in not open. And when you live your life in not open, you're saying no to things way before you've had any of the intuition that it might have been a yes. You just don't have that intuition because intuitions develop by open. That's how, you, that's how you get to know the world. And I pity the fool who was raised by overprotective parents because those parents stole that child's intuition. And now they're, now they're without a compass. They're adults without compass. And that's, uh, that's really rough because you, you just wind up afraid of everything because you, know, you, you just don't know what's behind any door, you know. Because you, you just never got your feet wet in the world of open, where you learn your lessons. I've had, uh, I've learned the, also the, the art of being a rebbe to people. And I've had many people come to me and say, you know, after what you just said, rebbe, it's pretty clear you knew this was going to be a dead end two years ago. And I say. Yeah. And then I tell him, well, you did too, because you were once in a class I taught. Meaning he was part of a smaller group of people that I was working with. And you were in a class and we covered it as well. But, you know, when I saw you hell bent on that spot right there, come on in. It's an open class, bro. And these ladies anywhere are taken off, I think. Perfect. There you go. You got three seats. You can lay down. Great, how are you? Awesome, that's what I like to hear. Said he's awesome. So, anyway, it was clear this person needed to, needed to make his own mistakes. You know, that, that was going to be necessary for him. So, you know, beyond general warning, I let him, I let him go make his own mistakes. It's not, I'm not going to do that very often, obviously. But sometimes it's, it is the right way. And that's a real art, to not be overprotective of somebody. Now, obviously, if he was gonna, if it was gonna be something like really disastrous, which happens in bigger stuff like marriage, you know, there I'm gonna put my foot down, and you know, I'm not gonna let the guy ruin his life. But, um, but, but short of marriage and marriage and maybe uh, something that could be of danger, like physical danger, then, then uh, I might let someone make their own mistakes so great so there's a battleground now that voice in your head has two major voices one voice is the animal voice and one voice is the godly voice you have two voices in your head the good angel and the bad angel so to speak on your shoulder okay there's an animal voice and a godly voice and you're in a battleground the point of the battle is to, um, the point of the battle is for you to have earned reward here because 
We're all spirits in a material world. Do you mind if I sing that in a song? We are spirits in the material world. Our spirits in the material world. Any musicians here? Huh? A musician? Can you sing the bass line? He's, oh, you can sing bass over here. What do you play? Uh, what instrument? Oh, my Oh, man, that's not going to help me with bass. I need someone to go like this. We are spirits in the material world. Our spirits in the material world. Anyway, yeah, that was, that was by the way, that was excellent effort. <laughs> we want to talk open, man. He wins the award. He just grabbed bass on this song. You know, so anyway, anyway, we are spirits in a material world and, and, but we really are spirits in a material world. And the, and the spirit part of you is, is, is most of you because your, your self, meaning the soul, the part of you that outlasts the body, the actual conscious self of you, that you have, that conscious self is made of five parts, and those are very multifaceted and large parts. The, this one's called the Yechida, and one's called the Chaya, and one's called the Neshama, and one's called the, one's called the, so again, there's the, it's, it's like, it's a whole array of levels, and one's called the Yechida, and one's called the Chaya, and one's called the Neshama, and one's called the, the Ruach, and then there's one called the, the Nefesh, and at the very bottom of the Nefesh, right about where the little white part of my fingernail is, that is USB cabled into your neurons. <laughs> That's your actual awareness self. That little edge is your awareness self. You're not allowed to have much more than the little white of the nail because you just wouldn't do so hot if you got more aware of what's going on with your soul because you're only allowed the outer edge of vision. And, uh, and when I say vision, it's really just awareness. Like everyone notices, take for a moment, is everyone aware that you're aware? Are you aware that you're in this room right now listening to me? So that awareness that you're aware is that membrane. So now you're there. Are you aware you're aware? You're aware you're aware? Great, you're aware you're aware? So that awareness that you're aware is the membrane that's aware you're aware. Now, so I said aware twice. You have the awareness that you're aware, that's the little thin membrane. What you're aware of in the room, meaning that you're in this room, that's your brain, that's the neurons, because your neurons are certainly feeding back to you right now that you're in a classroom hearing a class. So that's the, aware, that's the awareness. I mean, you're aware, you're aware. You are aware, that's the membrane of the ne- thin membrane of the nephesh, are aware, that's the neurons, of being in this room, which is the object in this class which is the object you're aware of. I spoke about this a bit last week, but it is interesting that, have you ever, have you ever experienced anything outside your awareness? <laughs> meaning, meaning everything you've ever seen, everything, every mountain, every car, every bus, every person, me right now, you're looking at me, but I'm really in your awareness right now, meaning I'm in your field of vision that's, that's reporting. Your neurons, are report, that awareness that you're looking at me is, are, is reporting to the awareness that there's a you 
which is that upper awareness, which is the awareness you're aware, the conscious self, the point of reference you call me, meaning you, the point of reference you call yourself is, is aware of you being aware of me right now speaking, but I'm really occurring inside that awareness. So have you ever experienced anything outside of that? And the answer is no. Everything you've ever experienced is somehow inside your conscious, conscious mind. But I just think that's cool. I mean, I do exist. I mean, if you walk in a lobby, I'm still up here. But for you, I'm in you somehow. Right now. And what's really cool about that is, uh, just to give you a, a little implication of that, what it implies, which is super important for everybody in this room, is take responsibility for you being the source of your experience. Nobody can hurt you. No one can hurt your feelings. No one can offend you. You know how like liberals love to get offended and like storm out of any conversation, which is really scary, by the way. Meaning, I would never believe the U.S. could come to war except for that one fact. That, that when you offend someone according to the liberal left, um, the conversation's over. They're allowed to walk out. That's the kind of stuff that leads to killing. I mean, as long as conversation can be had, we can agree to disagree. That's cool. We'll have the conversation. And we can agree to disagree at the end of that conversation, but at least the conversation was had. But when someone has to walk out because, God forbid, you offend them, which is now somehow, you know, uh, I'm sure they'd come up with a label of what you've done to them. You know, because they're just constantly recreating what being offended is, which they, they're slowly trying to, they're trying to make getting offended be put into law. You know, like you're, you're not allowed to offend somebody. <laughs> I mean, that's a perfect way to turn your entire society into vanilla, you know, because we're all being shaped by, we're all being shaped by some harsh edges. And if you take away the harsh edges, well, good luck getting shaped into anything. You know, they're going to turn everyone into just a ball of, ball of nothing, a scoop of vanilla ice cream. And, uh, and so it's important to maintain certain levels of offensive reality so that, so that we all know where we stand. You know, when I meet people who are more radical to the right in the Haredi community, like the black hat community, are like blocking traffic because of army conscription or whatever they're doing, you know. And, or there's other ones, they're, they're walking around with signs against internet, you know, which is, you know, if, if you... If, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. There are people walking around with signs against the internet. And I promise you, I promise you, there are more offenses, like internet offenses going on in their camp than the ones who actually laugh about that. Meaning, if there's anyone misusing internet, it's going to be people who were not taught how to use their muscles properly with modern technology. They're the ones who are going to fall hard there. And the, um, whereas, whereas, you know, it's pretty hard to protect your children with open internet in our generation. Um, so I wouldn't suggest like having your internet wide open to your children. I mean, that's just like, you might as well just hand them a gun, you know, but the, cause they just don't have any muscles, they're kids. But if you want to try to protect adults, don't protect them. It's the same conversation we had earlier. Don't protect them 
by having them in a situation where they're never developing their own free will. Because if, all you have to do is walk 15 minutes or 10 minutes or even five minutes in many neighborhoods and you have full internet cafes with private booths. <laughs> you know, if you ain't got no muscles, man, you don't belong in there. That's for sure. So, so it's, it's much better. Much better we, we have people developing strength. But anyway, when I see those dudes having their little internet, you know, internet protest or army conscription protest. And then I see that there's people over there in uh, Tel Aviv having some other weird protest <laughs> where it's, you know, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out which gender the people are, you know, at the protest. So, so the, the, um, I don't get upset by either side. I know it offends people, but I like being a little offended because it lets me know where I am. It gives us all a place to be. So having edges in, in things that are a bit offensive and sharp helps you very much in developing your, your worldview and how you look at things. And it's never, never, don't make a big deal out of it. It's God, God created wingnuts to be on both edges of the bell curves of life. No matter what you look at, there's always going to be a couple wingnuts on the edge. And, and so those people are, are really helpful, yet they all want, they want to get rid of the other guys. <laughs> you know, they're always talking about like getting rid of the other side and, and uh, we need both sides to find our place and to know who we are. So we're spirits in a material world and there's only a little part of you that's present in this room, that awareness. Oh, let me finish the fact that everything you've ever experienced was in yourself. So take responsibility for your voice and, and no one can offend you. That's that I just went on that whole parenthesis on offensive language or offensive whatever. That, um, that no one can offend you. You can let someone offend you, but, but you take responsibility for your own listening. Okay, let's try that together. Take responsibility for your own listening together. Take responsibility for your own listening. Yeah, you don't point, something's offending you, don't point fingers. You don't have to repeat that part. But um, everyone, there's always someone who does that. (laughs) She's so, like, coachable. It's amazing. In my seminars, you know, I push people very, very hard. Meaning your entire, your entire self is in a blender. You know, and you're, which is really cool because once something's in a blender, you can pour it into any shape you want, which is, which is much more exciting than being stuck in the shape you're in from 16-whatever wood or dry, you know, like, or, you know, it's much nicer to have, have some pliability, um, malleability, that you can move to the world's undulations, the dynamics. So, anyway, I put everyone in a blender, but the first night when they go home, they have a homework assignment. Everyone has to flip their pillow over without knowing why. <laughs> Meaning before you go to bed, you have to flip your pillow over. And, of course, everyone needs to know why. And I just, you know, someone will always raise their hand and say, why? <laughs> and I just sit there looking at them. Why don't you just flip your pillow over, man? Just flip it over. Okay. So, so you'd be you'd be an excellent pillow flipper. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and you'd have tremendous results. And I can tell you this, that after running this, for, running this seminar for the last 17 years with over 8,000 graduates, I can tell you there's a direct correlation between the person who asked why and that person's results in the seminar. Because they, they, they're not doing nothing they don't understand. And, and as, if, as if they have any clue where I'm leading them over these next five days. Like, it's be much better to just, just like, sorry, <laughs> shut your mouth. Just shut your mouth. And because and, your life obviously isn't working that well if you showed up here. So, like, it's about time you just shut up and took five days of, of uh, oh gosh, I'm running a Hebrew one, so it's coming out in Hebrew, Hanchaya, which is um, direction. <coughs> Get directed for five days, man, because doing it on your own is not working. You know, and, and so you can, there's literally a correlation to the results of that guy who said, why? Compared to the people who just said, the rabbi says, flip your pillow. I'll flip my pillow. <laughs> that person will go places because they're open. Yeah. Now, the... Um, I forget where I forget where I'm at. Someone help me. No, no. We take responsibility for your own listening. Yeah, it's taking responsibility for your own listening. Empowers you, and you you lose that whole bleeding heart. They offended me. Business. I heard it said nicely by Jordan Peterson, who's like one of my favorite intellectuals in the Gentile world, at least. He he's he's quite up there with my least favorite intellectual in the Jewish world. <laughs> Meaning every single intellectual from now till all the way down to Moses is above Jordan Peterson in my favorite intellectuals. But regarding Gentile intellectuals, he's the best. He is by far the best. Anyway, you know what he said? He said something amazing. He said, he, regarding like gender identity, stuff like that, you know, identity crisis that's going on. He says, identity is a negotiation. And you can't force it on people. You just negotiate well with who you are. He's not just identity of gender. All identity. Don't walk into some organization because you were born Asian and think you're going to excel in that particular capacity because that company's been forced to hire a quota of Asians. By the way, it's a lousy example because Asians are usually extremely valuable in these companies. But let's just say the guy's from Vietnam and, and has not been to school yet. But, uh, but, you know, somehow got through some schooling and got hired by this company because they needed a Vietnamese person just to be able to be a company because the government said everyone's going to need at least two Vietnamese people in their staff. And so that kind of a socialist environment... Is, is getting rid of the negotiation of identity. And what you do is, through, through, your own, through your own competence, do you get your identity. By proving your competence in the negotiation of life, will we relate to you? And that's the way the world should be, is that, that proven competence is how you negotiate. Not because, not because you know, liberal society doesn't want anyone offended. You know, they don't want anyone offended. 
So, so we've got to make sure we're not offensive. And so now we have incompetent people in, in uh, positions of great responsibility. You can't have that going on because identity is, is a negotiation. You have to negotiate your identity. And, um, uh, okay, we're good with that. So, of the voices in your head, we're talking about that voice, which is your consciousness, is, is just a thin membrane of who you really are, which is all in the soul world. What that means is that you're, all of you, and again, no offense, you're all mostly dead. You're all mostly dead because, because 99.9% of you is already in the soul world. There's only a thin little membrane that's down here in this world. And isn't it amazing how we totally, we, we even forget about the thin membrane, <laughs> meaning, meaning at least you got a thin membrane of, of what's called nephesh, we'll call it soul. At least you got a thin membrane of soul that's your conscious self, that is that awareness that you're aware. At least you got that. But it's so thin and so subtle that it's very hard to win the battle. Because this, this number of mastering free will is called battleground. But it's very hard to win a battle when you're talking about a very thin membrane of soul in this body of yours with its own ideas about everything. And, and you have to survive and you have to go to the bathroom and you have to make money so you can eat and you've got to shelter yourself. And there's a million things to do. And then you got Westernism, you know, which I thought we had beat in the Hanukkah battle, but apparently we're losing big time, you know, where, because all the, all the Jews, whether they're in diaspora or they're secular in Israel, are, have completely lost their identity with, the, with that thin membrane of the soul. Like that thin membrane called the soul, people have lost their identity with that. They don't identify with it. And so everyone's identifying with that Greek body because Greeks were all about externalities and that became the identity of, of Greek people. Um, but, but so many Jews today are Greek. I don't want to mention any towns right now, but um, I was told that the place they need me most was an area that's very wealthy in, uh, in the East Coast. I'm being very careful. In the East Coast area. And so... The East Coast area, very wealthy town, and uh, and so they said like they really need you, Rabbi. Like, please run a seminar there. So, so I I uh, did all the regular stuff, did all the marketing and everything necessary to run the seminar, and got the hall rented and all that, everything together. And there we were, the first day of the seminar. Guess how many people showed up from that area? None. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. The daughter of the... No, I didn't rent a hall. I was in the basement. And then we weren't in the basement, but we were in a big room in a mansion. The daughter of the people in the mansion came to the seminar. That's it? So one? No, no, it was packed, but the people came from far. They drove from far, because whenever I run a seminar, the people are flying in and coming from all over. Oh, wow. It's just that no one came from the wealthy community, because... Because they're all set. Everything's fine there. Can't you see my Lexus? 
Don't you realize everything's okay? We're great. So that's what happened. But one funny thing that happened, you know, just on the side, was that there were, there were, there've always been like these very important rabbis who have like extremely high level and high profile positions who really need to do the seminar. And they've spoken to me about it. And they've just said, can we do it one-on-one? You know, what would I have to pay you? You know, I'm like, it doesn't work one-on-one, man. You got to be in the group. It's a group thing because we live in group and we're working on how we live. And so we got to be with a group of people. So guess what? They, a bunch of them thought that this would be their chance to finally do the seminar in an anonymous, you know, just wealthy town. That wasn't their shtetl in Brooklyn or Muncie or Lakewood or whatever. And so what happened was, it was the most awkward scene ever. Because it was worse than they expected. Because it was all the people they would never want to know that they were coming to do this level work were all around the table just like wishing they could die. So we had to discuss that and clear the air. The one thing I hated about that particular seminar was the carbon footprint of people driving from all over New York and all over New Jersey and everywhere just to get to this neighborhood where, of course, everyone's perfect. So I I didn't like so much fossil fuels and smog and etc. Just for that seminar. Okay, everyone. Um, I, I'm just going to wrap this thing up. You got a battle, and the two ba- the battles between the the body and the and the soul. The body's the one that wins. Uh, have you ever seen the movie? It's a very short movie. It's called uh, Bambi versus Godzilla. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for identifying that. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, Bambi versus Godzilla. Bambi versus Godzilla. It's a short film. I imagine you could pull it up on YouTube. It's like really short, and like extremely short. I mean, it's basically Bambi and then a shadow of a foot, <laughs> and then the movie's over when the foot lands. But anyway. Bambi vs. Godzilla is the battle we're all in. But I'd like you to imagine, what if you could pump Bambi up with some steroids or something and, like, give her a whole workout for, like, about a decade? You know, like, maybe we could pump her up to, like, deal with Godzilla. And you know what? It may not be with strength, maybe with, with smarts, like, to use, use Bambi's smarts to outfox Godzilla in the situation. You know, the David and Goliath style story and, and maybe we could make it happen that Bambi would do pretty good. I'm always reminded of a, a parents whose parent a, a child who plays violin and her parents her parents are big uh, uh, Rolling Stones fans and they're going to see Rolling Stones in like the LA Coliseum for like fifty thousand people. And this little girl's learned every Rolling Stones song because that's all they play in the house. On her violin, you know. <laughs> you know, she's playing Satisfaction on her violin. I can't get no satisfaction. That's the doors. No, that's the stones. Anyway. When I'm driving in my car. And a man comes on the radio 
Telling me more and more about some useless information. Trying to define my imagination. I can't. It's a very Jewish song. Get no. It's a Hanukkah song. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's just another rock and roll against the Western Greek lie, you know. That's what the song's about. How he was unsatisfied with, you know, the useless information that had bec- that had come to define his imagination. Because, you know, people aren't very open in the West. Anyway, so she, she really wants to go to the concert, so they're bringing her to the Rolling Stones concert. She's only seven years old. And she said, she, when they're going in the car, she's got her violin. And she's like, they're like, you don't need to bring your violin to this concert. And she's like, starts to cry. And they're like, fine, you can bring it till the concert. But when they get out of the car, she's got the violin. She's bringing it in. Anyway, during this concert with like 50,000 people, speaker stacks like 50 feet in the, in the sky, you know, with, blasting the music, she's in the third row. And she's just like, dee, 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 dee. the whole time, so happy. She can't even hear her own violin, you know, who knows what key she's in. And, and the, uh, but she's in the right key because she knows the song. And, and um, anyway, uh, Mick Jagger is just totally enamored by her. He just loves watching this girl. And he can see she's got it down, man. Like, she's, she's got the notes, you know. And he just finally says, we got to bring her up. We just got to bring her up. And so they bring her up, and there she is on stage, and they get a microphone pick up onto her violin, and now she's coming through the 50-foot speakers, just blasting violin to the crowd perfectly with Mick Jagger singing, and, and like the crowd's going crazy. And, and, they, and we are, our soul is like trying to play violin at a, at a Rolling Stones concert. You can't hear it. You can't hear it, but but if you give it a pickup, if you pick it up, and the way you pick it up is by is by getting your act together as a Jew, like getting your tribal alignments down with avoiding negative commandments, then don't do's, don't do. And do the do's. You do the do's, you avoid the don't do's, you do everything deeply and with heart and soul and and, and intensely with a mentor who's leading you and and you're part of a community, you found at least a micro-community of people who are, feel the same way about things, you can actually get your violin cranking up over the Rolling Stones to where you're, you're really blasting it out there. And you're playing I Can't Get No Satisfaction because now you hear your voice, you hear your soul, and the only satisfaction someone with a God-sized hole in their heart is, the only thing that fills God-sized hole is God. And so, so, let's rock. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, please share, the, share this class out. And, uh, and we're moving closer and closer to the club. So anyone who wants to be in my club, we also, we're going to do uh, Shabbatones and stuff together. That's one of the things we thought of. So please let me know if you're going to be part of it. And share this if you're watching on Facebook. Just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.